beautiful. As we, uh, today we're getting into a passage of scripture that I think I've breezed over a um, hundred times in my life, but in these last few days and weeks as I've been reading it and in studying it, I feel like God was just like de- um, depositing courage into my soul, into my heart. And so my hope, my prayer for you, for us as a church today, as we read God's word, is that we would like sense how near God is, that would be people who are filled with hope and faith and courage. Is that all right this morning? Beautiful. If you have it, Matthew chapter 20, say, I'm there. If you need a moment, say, hold up. No. Okay, beautiful. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 20. Before we get there, I'm going to start in chapter 9, and then we'll be in chapter 20. Here's God's word. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he'd gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. Chapter 20. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. This is God's word. May we be good hearers of the word and better doers of the word. May we trust what Jesus says. May we love Jesus deeply. And may we follow Jesus well. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Did anybody um, in the room, or online, I guess if you want to answer, you can. Um, Did anybody ever in the room do school government? School like ASB, student government? Okay, okay, yeah. (laughs) Great, a couple of you. Perfect. I was like, oh, I'm going to be alone in this. Beautiful. Thank you for your service. Um, When I was in the fifth grade, I had this desire for some strange reason to, yeah, that's fifth grade Christian. We had a desire, yes, we did, to be in student leadership. Um, I decided that I was gonna run for my fifth grade class president. I don't know what my motivation was. That It's not like it helps you in college or something. Like, you're a fifth grade class president. No, but I decided that I was gonna be the fifth grade class president. So I prep a speech, I get ready, we have election day. And right before, I find out one of my best friends at the time named Richard Shockley. He might be the villain in the story, it's okay. Richard Shockley, he was also running against me as class president. Like, one of my best friends. Fifth grade drama intention, you can understand deeply. So I get my speech ready, I get ready to do it. I I paint this beautiful, eloquent picture as a fifth grader of what the life and journey of a fifth grader could be. You know, I painted this vision of what our life could be if I was the class president of the fifth grade. Richard Shockley gets up, doesn't say much. He hasn't done a lot of student leadership or anything. It's fifth grade, you know. And he says, oh my gosh, he says, if I'm class president, I'll work really hard to get rid of homework, 
and to bring donuts once a week for class. You can understand the tension in our relationship after that promise, right? It was that year in fifth grade, that moment, that I think began this little like frustration in me towards political promises. Now, we're not going to talk about everyone's favorite thing, elections. But when I, when I think about this story and I think about this moment in my life, I think, I think about politicians and I think about leaders. When leaders make promises, it sets up and it touches to people's hopes. It's not just like empty words, it's not trite, it's not just like for the sake of doing it. When a leader says that they're gonna do something, what they're actually doing is they're touching people's hopes, their dreams, their desires, sometimes their wounds, their fears. If you've ever felt that, that little bit of cringe, like can that leader, will that person, will that government really live up to its promise? then you know some of the tension and the feeling that we have as we enter into Matthew 20 and 21. Jesus is riding towards, he's walking towards Jerusalem, and people in the next chapter, which we're going to be in the next few weeks, they begin to hail and praise him as the son of David, like the song we sang, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. People are starting to say that this guy is the son of David. Now, what's the son of David? Who is this? It's basically a Jewish term meaning Messiah. The crowds, the people, they're starting to see Jesus and they're thinking that this man, maybe he is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the son of David. The son of David is this long-awaited, promised king. David is kind of the ideal king, even though he wasn't perfect, hello, but he's this ideal vision of what it looks like to be possibly a good king. But there was a hope and a promise that one day there'd be a son of David, someone going down his lineage, one of his kids or his great, 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 whatever kids, the hope that there'd be a new son of David who becomes the king and who brings peace and prosperity, health and healing to the people of God. Now, there were prophets, and the prophets were, were um, portraying and calling out to what this Messiah would be like. Ezekiel said, he will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. Isaiah prophesied, saying, he'll give sight to the blind. The Psalms say that they'll deliver the needy and have compassion. Do you see what's happening here? The son of David, in the next chapter of Matthew, he's heading towards the city of David. That's where our story picks up. Now, verse 29, the Bible says that he is leaving Jericho. Jericho is, some say, 17, some say 15 miles, but it's a day's journey from Jerusalem. This is a messianic move. He's headed towards the capital city, the Messiah. He's on his way. His mission is about to come to pass. Like, this is what he's been aiming for. This is what he's been talking about. This is what he's been um, talking about that he's going to do. The king, the son, he's coming. It makes me think of, like, the Lion King, Simba, like, coming back to Pride Rock. Like, and what is Simba actually about to do? Simba's going to get rid of the oppressor. He's going to bring flourishing and peace to the Pride Lands, trying not to be sacrilegious, but you understand the analogy. Jesus, the king, the Messiah, he's on his way. He's almost to the capital city, and with it are so many hopes and expectations. What sort of Messiah is this? Like, who is he going to be? The crowds have a picture of a political figure, a hero, someone who's going to get rid of the oppressor, who's going to change the government, who's going to fix their problems. And the disciples, as Bethany taught us last week, they have different expectations on the Messiah. Their expectation is that he's going to help them. He's going to give them status. They have ambition, as Bethany mentioned. We all, if we kind of think about it, probably have expectations or hopes on Jesus as Messiah. What are your expectations as Jesus being your Messiah? For some of us, maybe it's that him and his kingdom are about getting rid of my political enemies. For others, it might be that Jesus is here to give me the best life possible. He's going to fulfill my wildest dreams. We often have an agenda for Jesus, and sometimes we're not even aware of it. The disciples and the crowds, they're walking with the Messiah to Jerusalem with these dreams and hopes and expectations. Yet as they're walking, on the other side, 
there's two blind men sitting by the roadside. Verse 30, two blind men sitting by the roadside. People are walking, they're headed to Passover, two blind men sitting by the roadside. They're blind, they, they can't see, which likely in that society means they can't work. There's no income for them. So what they have to do is they have to sit and they have to beg and they have to bank on and hope for some people heading to Passover to be generous towards them. These guys are desperate. But not only that, these guys, it's not only that they can't just see. Think about it, they're heading to Passover. These men, they're sitting and they can't celebrate. They're sitting on the roadside while people are getting ready to sing and shout and head to the Passover celebration, the celebration of God's deliverance, the future hope that God might do it again. People, can you imagine the shouts and the songs? And these guys, they're stuck sitting by the roadside while other people are off celebrating. Now imagine life passing you by like that, just stuck, and people are walking by on the celebration. Imagine these men, blind, sitting. And you know, they, they, they know about Passover. They've heard the shouts and the songs before, but could you imagine them just sitting on the roadside, waiting, hoping that someone will give them, hoping someone will be generous to them, but there's something different about this crowd. It's, it's not just normal, the normal songs, the normal psalms of ascent. There's a buzz in the air. There's an excitement. There's something that's buzzing around and stirring around, and they start to hear the whispers and the conversations going around that this isn't just any Passover. Jesus is a part of this caravan. Jesus is walking by. It might be the son of David. Yeah, we've heard about that guy from Galilee. He heals the sick, and he, he, he's, he raised Lazarus. He, he could be the son of David. These blind men, they can't see, but they can hear. They can't see, but they can hear. And they hear these buzzings and these conversations. They, they don't know how far he's, he is. They don't know really if he's close. They, they hear that he might be passing by. So what do these blind men do? The Bible says they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Now, clearly I'm not blind, but could you just imagine being in that position? You don't have any other option but to shout but to cry out, but to call out. These men, they may not know how far Jesus is, but they cry out. They may not know if he can hear them, but they cry out. They may not know if he can help, but they cry out. And their cries, they were answered. They were answered by the crowd with rebuke. Rebuke. Have you ever felt like your cries have gone unheard or they've been silenced by the people around you, maybe by the people of God? These men, they're rebuked. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, the word rebuked, if I'm right, only comes up five times. Jesus, he rebukes the wind and the waves. Peace be still, he rebukes them, and they calm down. Jesus rebukes the demons and tells them to be silent. But do you know who Jesus never rebukes in Matthew? He never rebukes the hurting. He rebukes Peter and Mark for when Peter actually ends up trying to, you know, rebuke Jesus for messing up the plan. He rebukes Peter, but Jesus never rebukes the hurting. Actually, it's interesting. Peter rebukes Jesus when Jesus didn't fit into his plan. The disciples, they, re they rebuked the parents of the children when they were bringing the children to Jesus. The crowds, now they rebuke the blind man who's hurting and calling out for Jesus. It's interesting to me that in Matthew's gospel, nobody rebukes the hurt. Jesus never rebukes the hurting, but sometimes God's people do. Oof, and it gets real. Do you, the Bible, um, it doesn't actually say why they rebuked them, though. You know, I kind of wish I understood a little bit more. But I think from experience, we could imagine or we could guess 
that the crowds are rebuking these men because they don't fit into their plan for Jesus. I mean, why else? Every time it happens. Oh, Jesus, your death doesn't fit into the plan. Rebuke. Oh, Jesus, the little children don't fit into the plan. Rebuke. Oh, the blind men. Rebuke. They don't fit into the plan. They're actually slowing down. If Jesus stops and does something for these men, it'll slow down the party. It'll slow down the plan. It'll interrupt. Don't interrupt. Rude. Anyone remember that? It'll slow things down. I hate being slowed down. Anyone else? I remember this morning on my drive to work, I, um, which is church, on my drive in, I um, was on my way on Burnside, and I'm like trying to make it on time for prayer, huh? and um, I'm on the way, and I, the Burnside bridge is closed, and I'm just like, ah, it's slowing down my plan. It's why on the freeway, a lot of us merge lanes pretty quickly. It's why in grocery stores at Trader Joe's on 23rd, hey, we do the thing where you like count how many people are in the lines, and then you just move accordingly, and you try to, yeah, and then you count, if you're like, like me, you count how many like, items they have, and then you make sure you beat them. Yeah, okay, I have a problem. Ruthless elimination, please help Jesus. <laughs> we don't like being slowed down. That's why at Disneyland, I always get a fast pass. I have a plan, and I don't want anything slowing it down. These men crying out to Jesus are slowing things down. So how do these two blind men respond to people who rebuke them, who are saying that they're slowing things down, who are trying to silence them? And they shout all the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. They keep calling out to the son of David. Often the disadvantaged and the marginalized are the ones who get who he is and they call out all the more to the son of David when they're resistant. Actually, it's interesting to me, their resistance, the crowd's resistance actually drove these blind men to persist. It kept driving them to call out to Jesus all the more. These blind men, they're not going to let the opportunity pass them by. If they think he's going to hear, they think he might respond. Jesus might just be as good as they say he is. So they keep on shouting and they get Jesus's attention. Now, the beginning of this whole section, actually in the Greek, the phrase starts, now behold, look, Matthew wants us to pay attention to something. I want us to pay attention to the actions of Jesus. First off, Jesus stopped. Now, why did Jesus stop? It must be because he heard their cries. Now, that is a major theme that happens all throughout scripture. God is the God who hears the cries of the oppressed, of the marginalized, of the hurting, of the broken. I love that the psalmist says, no one who waits on you, God, will be put to shame. He's a God who hears the cries and responds. You know, when I was growing up um, as a black boy in America, my parents taught me about racism. Like, I grew up and my parents told me about racism, civil rights. We watched Roots as a child, which is borderline traumatic, if you know, if you've seen that movie. I remember every February, we literally have like Black History Month cards. Thanks, Dad, for those. But every year, we would talk about these things all throughout our life. It's just part of our culture. It's part of who we are. We talk about issues of race and slavery. We'd ask the card questions of how could God let this happen? Like, how? I remember going to my grandmother's church in downtown Seattle around Capitol Hill. It's the first African Methodist Episcopal church, people. Like, it is incredible. This incredible traditional African-American church. And I remember the reverend at my grandma's church, all whenever he'd preach, he'd often bring up this little phrase and this idea because we talk about things like slavery and civil rights and oppression and hurt. And we'd ask the question with the people of God, how could God let this happen? Where is God in the middle of this? Do you know what that reverend constantly would say? He's the God who hears the cries. He's the God who hears the cries. He always hears the cries of the oppressed. He always hears the cries of the hurting. He's always, his ears are attentive and listening to the cries. 
That's our God. Contrary to the crowds, Jesus actually sees these blind men as his agenda. They're not an interruption. They're not slowing things down. They're actually the reason why he's come. Often, and ironically, it's the blind who see Jesus for who he really is, the desperate, the people who are hurting. They're the ones who actually get who Jesus really is. And a misconception that we have to fight as God's people is that God has other priorities, that he has other things to do that's not helping the hurting. Jesus stopped. Second of all, Jesus called. Do you think these blind men would have expected Jesus to call back to them? I mean, just think about that. Blind, sitting on the roadside, and Jesus calls to them. Now, Mark's gospel gives us a little bit more information about who these people are. One of them's name is Bartimaeus. Ever heard of him before? He actually tells us he's the son of Timaeus. Now, I won't build a whole sermon around this name, but maybe there is a literary intention that Mark is trying to give us here. Bartimaeus, Timaeus actually means esteemed one, honored one. Bartimaeus means son of highly esteemed, prized, valuable. Maybe there's just a little bit of a literary intention here that Mark's trying to show us in this story, that this blind man, his life doesn't look like his name. He should be a son of honor, a son of esteem. He should be highly prized and favored, yet he's sitting on the roadside asking for handouts, begging while people walk by. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus, when he called to them, he actually called the crowd to go get them. Not only that, though, this is so cool. Mark's gospel also tells us that they said up to them, they walked up to them and said, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Mark tells us that Bartimaeus, when he gets up to his feet and he actually begins to take off his coat. Could you imagine his coat? Now, some scholars, they argue that this coat isn't just any coat. It's actually in there. It's a purpose. This coat is a beggar's coat. It reminds him that he has the identity of a beggar, that he can sit on the street, and then he gives him the permission to beg and ask for money. Bartimaeus takes off his coat. Cheer up, he's calling you. Jesus stops, he calls, then he asks, what do you want me to do for you? Do you remember the paralyzed man at Bethsaida? He asked a similar question. Do you want to get well? Jesus has this kind of annoying habit of asking people kind of obvious questions, right? <laughs> I'm blind. Like, can you not see? Are you the Messiah? Should we look for another? Like, I am blind. But maybe there's some intention with Jesus. Maybe Jesus wants these blind men to search within themselves. Now imagine yourself in this moment. You get asked, you get used to asking for alms. You get used to sitting in the heat. You get used to begging. You get used to being ignored. And we know this is true because we as Americans are some of the wealthiest people in human history, and yet we walk by the poor each day. They're used to being ignored, and they're used to not being seen. Maybe some generous people give them a little bit. So can you imagine the tension that's in their hearts when Jesus asks them, what do you want? There's a tension and a war in most of our hearts between our hopes and our future and our past and disappointment. And you can imagine like what it would be like for their hearts to be pounding in this moment, wondering if Jesus is who he says he is and if he, if he can deliver on all the promises that people have said about him. I mean, these blind men, they've been used to asking for money. So what would be a safe thing to ask for from the son of David, from the future king? 
They could ask for money. We know what it's like to have hope and disappointment just living in tension in our prayers. You know, every time we actually call out to Jesus, we really do put our hopes on the line, right? I mean, I get personally the hope that's attached to fear and the fear that's attached to hope that these blind men are probably sensing. I've watched loved ones fight cancer and MS and arthritis. I've been up in the night when friends who are close to me can't sleep. They can't even, they're stuck, paralyzed by clinical depression and anxiety. I know the fear and hope that sit together. God can do this, but what, what if? I watch people I care for not have enough money to pay the month's rent. People that go to church calling out. So many of us know what it's like to lose sleep at night, just wondering and hoping how things are going to work out. Anyone else? We know how scary it can be to bank everything on God. Jesus asks these blind men, what do you want me to do for you? But in Matthew 9, Jesus asks two other blind men a different question. He asks them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Maybe that's the first question we have to start with. Now in Matthew 20, while the first question, it's about trusting Jesus' ability. In Matthew 9, when Jesus asks this, do you believe I'm able? It's trusting his ability. In Matthew 20, Jesus is asking the blind man a different question. He's asking, do you trust me with your deepest needs? Because what we ask for, and dare I say what we don't ask for, reveals a lot about who we think Jesus is and what he can do. Think about James who says, you have not because you ask not. Or maybe Jesus is teaching in Matthew 6. Your heavenly father knows what you need, therefore ask. Wait, he knows, but still ask. Verse 33, Lord, we want our sight. Lord, we we want our sight. Like, I want to see. They're putting their deepest hopes, their deepest needs out in front of Jesus. And then what does it say in verse 34? Jesus had compassion on them. Now think about this for a moment. These men, they cry out for mercy. Mercy, it's pragmatic. It's asking for help. Do something. Benevolence. Mercy. They're asking for mercy. Now it's possible for a person to show mercy and not show compassion. Think about a judge. A judge, she can give a more lenient sentence and show mercy to somebody, not because she really is compassionate towards them, but because instead she's feeling social pressure to do it. Think about a CEO. A CEO, if she wants, she instead can, can, she can not fire her employees, not because she's been compassionate, but because deep down it's not worth the hassle of trying to figure it all out. You can show mercy without compassion. These men, they ask for mercy, but Matthew tells us that they found that Jesus was compassionate. He's not only able, he doesn't just have the power to act. He doesn't just have the ability to fix it. He's compassionate. Do you know what compassion is? And actually, I think this is the whole point of the passage. It's saying that Jesus is compassionate. He's not just powerful. He's not just able. He actually cares deeply. In Greek, this verse 34, it actually reads like this. Had compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. They're trying to put emphasis right there on the fact that Jesus is compassionate. In Greek, the word is splunk nizome. Blessed Jesus, splunk nizome. It means inward parts or bowels of mercy or the pit of your stomach. It means to be deeply moved. The Hebrew idea of compassion is raham. It's related to a womb. It's a mother or father's compassion for a helpless child. It's aggressive acts of self-service. 
Our English word compassion, it comes from Latin, two words, com, which means with, and pati, which means to suffer. It literally means to suffer with. Compassion is seeing hurt and stepping into it, moving towards it. It means to enter into someone's sorrow and pain, to feel passion for someone. Compassion is when someone steps into suffering. Maybe if you need a message title, he steps into suffering. That's where God is. He steps into suffering. Compassion, it's action and feeling. God does not only act. He's not detached emotionally. He, he feels deeply? What? Wait, this God, he feels for the blind men. He doesn't just heal them, he feels for them. And I know for some people, and even in some traditions, it's almost irreverent to talk about a God who's very, who, who has feelings. But I actually personally think it's more irreverent to not really take God for who he says he is. This God says that he is compassionate, deeply moved, and then powerful and acting. Compassion is the word that is used over and over to explain who Jesus is. Let me show you a few scriptures. Now, every time we get to the word compassion, and it'll be on the screen, I want you to say it out loud. Masks on, but say it out loud, loud enough so your neighbor can hear. Are you ready? This is who Jesus is, Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Lastly, the text we're in today, Matthew 20. Jesus had compassion on these blind men. We have a God who's deeply moved, who's compassionate. This is who God is. This is what he's like. But sometimes... It's pretty hard to believe that God's compassionate. Sometimes it's hard to cry out to Jesus with our deepest needs. For me, as I step into the story and I see myself in it, I realize that often my default view of God is not always compassionate. It's not the first thing that always comes to my mind when I think of this God. What's the result? It's that I don't always ask. I don't always pray about what I need. I stay seated and I stay silent. There are moments where I think and where I personally sense Jesus is asking and he's inviting me and saying, Christian, what do you want me to do for you? And I respond kind of with a lesser thing. I say something like endurance, which is a good thing to pray for, but what I really want is relief. How many times do we not ask God for the real thing? Because deep down we don't think, yeah, he's merciful. He has the power to do something, but is he really compassionate? We get that he's powerful. We get that he has the ability to show mercy, but sometimes deep down, we don't trust that he's compassionate, which is why this moment with Jesus is so important. Jesus is not merely a prophet pointing to God. He's not just a teacher explaining what God is like. Jesus is God. Jesus is God on display, showing who he is like. When God wants to show anything about his character, he leads with not power, not royalty, not infinite wisdom. He leads with compassion. Out of anything that God could choose to lead with, he leads with compassion. Yeah. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin. That's who our God is like. 
Did you know 80% of the times in the Bible when the word compassion is used, it's actually describing God? 80% of the times, not talking about people, it's talking about him. That's who our God is. Compassion is the baseline starting point. So we have to deal with any misconceptions that are in our lives about God that tell us that he's something other than compassionate. Now, I get that that can be hard for some of us to trust, but it's in those moments that we need to be like these blind men and call out to Jesus to help us believe that he is compassionate. Jesus stops. Jesus calls. Jesus asks. Jesus had compassion. Then Jesus touched their eyes. Touched these blind men's eyes. Well, I feel like that's disgusting in some ways. I don't do contacts because I don't want to touch my eyeballs. It's like, oof. It's pretty touching to see here, pun intended. Jesus touches these blind man's eyes. You know, Jesus could have just said a word. He could have done like the drive-by healing. He could have just said a word and they would have been healed. He's done that before. But Jesus invites these men to come close, to get near to tell him what they really want, and he touches them. He touches the source of pain. He actually touches the thing that gets them in the situation begging in the first place. He touches the wound. He always touches the broken thing. He touches the loathsome sore or a blind man's eye or a leper's skin. Jesus, he's so personal. He's not aloof. He's not distant. He's not just back, you know. And he touches. He touches their eyes. He touches those whom other pass by. Now imagine those blind men, everything, it goes from dark to kind of fuzzy, to kind of blurry, to blindingly bright. And all of a sudden, there's 34 says, immediately, they received their sight. And I imagine the first thing that they saw was Jesus. The first thing they saw, they looked into the eyes of compassion. Do you know what's even crazier? What I can't stop thinking about, though, with this whole text is that before they were able to see Jesus, they were seen by Jesus. Before they even knew he was looking, he saw them. And now they can see that he had seen them and that he still sees them. I actually think that's where prayer begins. Most prayer, it begins with not with what I have to say. It actually begins with the reality that God sees me. God sees me. Do you know what Matthew 6, basically the summary statement in my mind could be? Oh, God sees you. Why do you worry? God sees you. Why, why, why are you doing all these things? Why are you loud like the Gentiles? Don't you know your heavenly father sees you? And do you know what happens when Jesus sees things? His reaction isn't frustration and it's not pity, which means we can even approach Jesus with sin and hurt and disruption and dysfunction, knowing that he sees it and his response is compassion. Now these men could see that even when they couldn't see, Jesus saw them. And what do they do? Verse 34 says, they followed him. Now, in Matthew 9, the blind men, they're told to keep quiet. Don't say anything, just shh. They don't, but, I mean, I wouldn't, but shh, be quiet. In contrast now, in Matthew 20, there's no silence. And Jesus doesn't tell these men to be quiet. This is the beginning of him being Messiah, the son of David. The Messiah is coming to open the eyes of the blind. Now, it's unclear if this word followed in Matthew at the end, if them following him, we, we don't know if it means that they became disciples and they followed him. That's pretty normal in Matthew. But also it could just mean that they joined the rest of the crowd heading to the Passover. But even if it's the lesser, even if they don't become full-on disciples and we just don't know, even if they only join the crowd going to Passover, do you know what that means? It means they joined the celebration. They were no longer sitting and seated. They could now celebrate. 
There's a new exodus. There's a new Passover. They joined the caravan. This reminds me of a story of a national leader heading to her coronation or her inauguration. Imagine that for a second. A national leader headed to sit on the throne of power. She's driving in her motorcade. Cars everywhere, driving. The streets are filled with the crowds. Yet all of a sudden, as she's driving by, she's looking out the window, taking deep breaths, getting ready to give her inaugural speech. She's almost to where she's going. And she looks out the window and sees a man with a sign. Dear President-elect, help. She looks at her chief of staff and says, stop the car. The advisors say, don't, don't, don't do it. We don't have time for this. Stop the car. They stop. The whole motorcade, the parade stops. She opens the door against the, the advisors. She walks over to this man with the sign asking for help. She looks at him and goes, what's your name? Learns the name. Robert. Robert, what do you want me to do for you? She has all the power in the world. What do you want me to do for you? She says, or he says back to her, I need somewhere to live. I need somewhere to sleep. Could you give me a home? She walks over to her advisor, tells him. She says, yep, we'll take care of it. Heads towards her car, but turns around for a second, and she does, and she looks him, wait, why are you still standing there? She says, get in. Robert jumps in the car with his president-elect. She tells the motorcade to turn around, and they head to the new home that they just found for her. She's a president, of course, so you can do that. They have a medical team waiting to care for his wounds. They have someone there ready in social services to help with the needs that he has, help him get a job, get the education he needs. Then she gets in her car. She's late to the inauguration, late to the coronation. It's okay. She heads over. You know, I wouldn't really need a speech to tell me what this woman was like. I wouldn't need a speech to tell me who this leader is because her actions showed it. This is the beginning of the triumphal entry of Jesus. He stops the whole party, asks these people who other, other people pass by, what do you want me to do for you? And he does it. Jesus shows what sort of Messiah he is, what sort of leader he is. He doesn't just make promises with his words. He shows it with his actions. He is compassionate. This is the prelude to the Messiah's triumphal entry. This is the prelude to his enthronement. Now on Sunday, Jesus rides up the hills of Jerusalem with songs and shouts. But by Friday, his compassion is most poignant in what the church and Mel Gibson calls the passion of Christ. In other words, his suffering. The cross is the most tangible expression of God's compassion. God doesn't only care about human suffering, he willingly subjugates himself to it. On the cross, Jesus shows that he's not only God who suffers with us, he's the God who also suffers for us. He gets actually what it's like to suffer. Like it's personal, he understands what it means to suffer. God takes on the ultimate form of suffering so that all who call on him will find relief and rescue and life and peace, and healing, and help. That is what Messiah, King Jesus, is like. That is what God is like. So what does all that mean for us? First of all, I think it means that we need to accept that Jesus doesn't exist for our agendas. Oof. Jesus does not exist for my agenda. He cares, but he doesn't exist for my agenda. 
The crowds had political dreams for Jesus. The disciples had personal ambitions for Jesus. Jesus does not exist to fulfill our wildest dreams, but he does come to meet our deepest needs. Second of all, remember what Jesus does. He uses his power to serve. Jesus, he's the son of David, the Messiah, the king of the nations, but he's a king like no other. He's a king who's both wildly powerful and deeply compassionate. He prioritizes the lowliest in society. Even though Jesus does do something for the masses, he also stops for the misfits and prioritizes them. As his people, we need to, we must, dare I say, compare or have compassion and care for those on the margins. We have to become like our Messiah. We have to become like this God. That's what his kingdom's about. He stops for those who are suffering. He's better than any politician. He's better even than our expectations. Third of all, we need to trust that Jesus is compassionate. Let me say that again. We need to trust that Jesus is compassionate. Most of us have some mental map, as we say in our church, about God that isn't fully true. Our pictures of God are often meshed with like poor theology or a bad church experience, hello, or family wounds or friendship hurts and trauma, and the list can go on and on and on. Sometimes it's unmet expectations, disappointment, disillusionment. We have trouble seeing God as compassionate. And there's no shame in that. Welcome to the party. There's food and drink. Like, welcome, you are not alone. We actually... That's why we actually need to enter into the church as community. That's why you need to come to basics. We need to enter into this church community. It's actually a family of adopted, dare I say, wounded people trying to understand what it means to be part of a new family with a new father. We're adopted into this new thing, and we actually need, and Jaron, he said this to me the other day. He actually said, I want to say it right. He says, this is why the church community is so important in re-loving those who develop so much non-love. Jaron. You said that. Direct quote, Jaron Oda. One more time for the people in the back. This is why the church community is so important in re-loving those who've developed so much non-love. We need our sisters and our brothers to help us see what our Father is like, to unmesh and untangle all the things that tell us God is not compassionate. Now, for all my pragmatists, here's the thing for you and for all of us, if I could ask us to do anything as a church, I'd ask us to call out to Jesus with our deepest needs. Call out to Jesus with our deepest needs. If you want me to be more specific with an action step, pray. Like, pray. And I don't say that with any sarcasm. I've actually been feeling in my heart for this year for our church that we just need to be audacious in our prayers. Like, we just need to be out there and be like, you know what? He might just do it. Won't he do it? He said he would. Like, I want to be a person. I want our church to be people who are just like, you know what? They're like my dad who goes to Costco and every parking spot's filled. And my dad is praying in tongues going, the God will open a spot for me. And I'm like, dad, shut up. And I swear to you, it always happens. I'm like, oh, won't he do it? He said he would. Like, that is what our God is like. Like, what if we became people who are audacious with our prayers? Does it feel too big? Perfect. Does it seem too small? I think that might be the right one to pray. What if God cared about every little detail of our lives? And we didn't get into the, well, what if he and is it? What if we just asked? Like, God, maybe you'll do it. What if we became that sort of people? What if we use this year, or dare I say, even just this week, to become bolder in our prayers? What if we asked God for what's closest to our hearts? What if we became persistent in talking to God about sickness in the body, or strength against temptation, or joy and hardship, or miracles with finances, or wisdom with the next step, or reconciliation in our relationships, or peace and uncertainty, or sleep through the night, or God's nearness in the middle of heartbreak? What if we just asked 
I know from experience that with this invitation, though, to pray and to ask God for what we need, there's many stories in our church and in this room and even in my own life of prayers that have seemingly gone unanswered. I will not diminish that reality. But what often happens is that our thoughts and our experiences, they act like the crowd rebuking us and telling us to stay silent instead of crying out to God with our deepest needs. While those pains are real, church family, I invite you when you're ready to still ask God. And then ask again and keep on asking. And if you even want a resource, um, John Mark a couple years ago did a beautiful teaching on unanswered prayer. I'd encourage you just go check that out. It'll do wonders for your soul and build your faith. Now, in my life, I'm not asking you to do something I haven't been doing. God has really been hounding me at this. Like, Christian, will you just ask me? Moving to Portland, I was like, okay, God, I just need you to meet me, like, financially. I know you'll do it. Like, God, will you do it? And I felt like God gave me a word that he was going to meet me to the dollar. Like, weird phrase. I've never been the guy where, like, God's like, financial miracle. And then I was like, but I felt like God said he'll meet me to the dollar. Family, God actually met me to the dollar. Like, I cannot explain to you. When I got my first paycheck at the end of October, I was like, it was like to the dollar. But more painfully, one of my best friends, her name's Caitlin. Her husband's name is Jared. We travel and lead worship together. And um, in 2019, we're in Australia leading worship. And we got back from this trip, and I got a phone call from Caitlin a few weeks later, screaming on the phone, saying, Jared has cancer, Jared has cancer, Jared has cancer, Jared has cancer. It's the last day of the semester for me when I'm working with college students. I'm going, what? Stage four lymphoma leukemia. He's 29. I remember going, you know what, God, I have nothing I can do but ask. And so I just kept praying, God, be merciful to Jared. Show mercy. Show compassion. By the end of 2020, we found out he was in remission. And then with that, or sorry, by the early 2020, he was in remission. Him and his wife moved to Montana. They plant this incredible church called Canvas Church in Billings, Montana. I was there for their first Sunday in September. And then in December, my phone rang, and they told me he relapsed. They came back. And being that desperate again, I said, God, will you show mercy, have compassion? Two weeks ago, they called me again saying, he's in remission again for the second time. Now, I know with a testimony like that, there's other stories, and I personally have other desires and needs and prayers that I'm still waiting for God to answer. But church family, would we let our desperation drive us Would we let any form of resistance keep us in persistence? Would we keep trusting and believing that God is compassionate, that he's merciful, that he'll act? Lastly, ask God to not only have mercy on you, ask him to have mercy on others. Jesus asks the crowd to bring the blind men to him. I think often that that's our responsibility as the church, to be compassionate like our rabbi, to bring others to Jesus in our prayers. If you know of a need with somebody, pray for it regularly. Like I, every day, my phone rings at 7 p.m. to pray, or at 12 to pray for one person's need that I keep in my phone. What could you do? Bring people to Jesus, or maybe even bring people to Alpha. But get involved with bringing people to Jesus. Jesus is compassionate. He is God's compassion on display. He's the God who steps into suffering. So may we boldly and persistently call out to him. Will you please stand with me? The author of Hebrews, he exhorted God's people, and so I will today. This is what the author of Hebrews said. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. 
For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now hear this, church. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Would you close your eyes just for a moment? I want you to imagine as we pray, I want you to imagine yourself, maybe like your childhood version of you. Imagine child version of you. Maybe like there's a photo of you. That maybe there's something in your memory. It's childhood version of you. And I want you to go back to that place like you're a little kid. And imagine that you're by yourself. And Jesus walks in the room. Just imagine that. Little version of you. Jesus just walks in. He's near. Jesus smiles at you. Then he kneels down. He looks into your eyes. He doesn't say anything. He just looks at you. Eyes filled with compassion. And then he asks you this question. The same question he asked those blind men. What do you want me to do for you?